There was once an old monastery, and it had fallen on some hard times. Centuries earlier, it had been a thriving monastery where many dedicated monks lived and worked, and they had a great influence on the, on the whole realm. But now, only five monks live there, and they're all over 70. This was clearly a dying order. A few miles from the monastery lived an old hermit, and the, the general feeling was that he was a prophet. And one day, the monks, uh, they're agonizing over the seemingly imminent demise of their beloved order. They decided to go and visit the hermit to see if he might just have some advice for them. Perhaps he would be able to uh, see the future and show them what they could do to save the monastery. So they gather together, and they head out on the field trip, and the five of them strap on their backpacks, and they grab their flasks of water and some granola bars, and they hike on over to the Holy Hermit headquarters. And the hermit welcomes them. All five monks pile into his hut, and when they explained the uh, purpose of their visit, the hermit could only commiserate with them. Yes, yes, I understand how it is said the hermit. The spirit has gone out of the people. Hardly anyone cares much for the old things anymore. The abbot being the man in charge stepped forward and he inquired, is there anything, anything at all that you could tell us that would help us to save the monastery? Do you have any insights? Can you give us any help? No, I'm sorry. I don't know how your monastery can be saved. The only thing that I can tell you is that one of you is an apostle of God. Really? I mean, but still, how does that help us, right? The, the, the monks are both, they're disappointed, they're confused by that cryptic statement from this holy hermit. Why didn't he tell us who? So they, they go back, they return, they hike back to the monastery wondering what the hermit could have meant by the statement, one of you is an apostle of God. So for months after the visit, the monks keep pondering the significance of the hermit's words. One of us is an apostle of God. Kept going over and over. Did he actually mean one of us monks here at the monastery? No. That's impossible, isn't it? We're all too old. We're all too insignificant. On the other hand, what if it's true? And if it's true, then which one of us is it? You suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, of course. Who else could it be? He probably meant the abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. He's the guy in charge. That's who it should be. On the other hand, he might have met Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas. He's a holy man, a man of wisdom and light. We've all turned to him. He couldn't have met Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times, and he's difficult to reason with. On the other hand, 
He's also almost always right. Maybe the hermit did mean Brother Elred. But surely he could not have meant Brother Philip. Philip is so passive and so shy. He's kind of a nobody. Still, he's always there when you need him. He is loyal. He is faithful. He is dependable. And he's so absolutely trustworthy. Yeah, you know what? He could have meant Brother Philip. Maybe. Of course, the hermit didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. I don't stand out. Yet suppose he did. Suppose I am an apostle of God. Oh God, not me. I couldn't end up doing being, a, being valuable to you at all. Or could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, back and forth, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, just on the off chance that one of them might actually be an apostle of God. And then on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be an apostle of God, spoken of by the hermit, each monk began to treat himself with extraordinary respect, just in case. Better safe than sorry. Because uh, the, monetary was situ- the monastery was situated in a beautiful forest, many people would come there to picnic on its lawn, to walk its paths, and even now and then to go into the chapel to meditate. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed the change. There was an aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround these five old monks. And it seemed to radiate out of them. It was good to be around them. It was permeating the atmosphere of the entire place. Something so strangely attractive, even compelling about it, it just wasn't like other places. And hardly knowing why, people began to come back. They went to the monastery more frequently now to picnic. They'd come to play. And they would come to pray. And they began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And then their friends brought their friends. As more and more visitors came, some of the younger men actually started to talk with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join them. Then another. And another. Within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the hermit's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality throughout the realm. And sometimes a perspective change allows for a completely new way of seeing and understanding, and it can transform the experience as well for all who are involved. So what if the presence of God is in us and around us? And what if we discovered the presence of God in the people around us? Might they be worthy of greater respect? If I treat them the way that God sees them, what kind of a difference would that make in my life, in their life, and in our shared lives? 
What kind of a difference might the love of God shining amongst us make to the people that live and work all around us? What would that look like? And when I go eyes up, my perspective changes and I'm able to see things through the light of Jesus first. Jesus first, everything else after. Let him calibrate. Let him order. Let him organize all the others. And that, that can sound, I understand, that can sound like theologically kind of distant. So like how, what, what does that actually look like? What, what, what can help me to see differently? I got to live this thing out. I don't need just a concept. What can help me? And I think one of those things is beauty, the beautiful. Beauty is spiritual. The best art always shifts our perspective. It always invites us to see what we might otherwise overlook. It inspires us to imagine what we hadn't previously considered, or it challenges us to reconsider the familiar from another point of view. This is one of the reasons that there's such widespread admiration for the work of Vincent van Gogh. Subjects of his paintings were almost always ordinary, a a vase or a vase of sunflowers, farmers in a field, peasants eating potatoes, a portrait of his mailman. But by using color and energy, he would infuse them with meaning or dignity that no photograph could communicate. His art is beloved. The Psalms function in a similar manner. They are also widely appreciated works of art. And there is inspiring beauty within bursting forth in worship and thanks. There is the beauty of life, even as there is the anguish in it. And we can see the beauty of kindness being shared by God to His people or by His people to each other. And there is great beauty in the unexpected light that filters through all of the surrounding darkness. And in places of pain and darkness, we can, almost, uh, we can most often have the, the, the profound experiences of beauty. They are highly focused. There is a rapture of the soul as we comprehend that which has been hidden up until now. I see it. I get it. And in great need, we can see even tiny acts, small acts of kindness by others as hugely significant and emotionally bursting moments. You have no idea how much that meant to me. Have you ever said that? These psalms, the the, the songs, these poems often engage familiar, very ordinary human experiences like grief and doubt and fear and gratitude and wonder and even anger. But like all great art, they shift our perspective. We are allowed or sometimes even caused to see things, to see others or even ourselves in a new light. And from a different angle, they challenge and transform the way that we see ourselves and our circumstances. New perspectives birth new understandings. And these understandings can call forth actions that were previously not even considered. Barriers may be broken. Aha moments come. At the time of... uh, at the time that Leonardo da Vinci was painting the fresco, The Last Supper, he's painting it in a church in Milan, he had an enemy who was a rival painter. Uh, the competition. And da Vinci had had a, 
bitter argument with this man and despised him. And when da Vinci painted the face of Judas Iscariot at the table with Jesus, he took special pleasure as he used the face of his enemy so that the face of his enemy would be present for ages as the man who had betrayed Jesus. He took delight in that, giggling to himself, knowing that others would actually notice the face of his enemy as Judas. What a good one. And as he worked on the faces of the other disciples, he often tried to paint the face of Jesus. Just couldn't seem to make any progress, so he left it to come back later. And he felt frustrated and confused. He was like, what's wrong? Like, I had been in such a groove, but now he's not groovy at all. He was just being held back. In time, he, he, he realized what was wrong. His hatred for the other painter was holding him back from finishing the face of Jesus. So only after going and physically making peace with his fellow painter and then repainting the face of Judas was he able to paint the face of Jesus and complete his masterpiece. The connection with Jesus brings about transformation that can only happen through the renewing of our minds. It is difficult to explain if it has not happened if it is not happening. The Holy Spirit draws us into the likeness of Christ and we continually experience and live out the appearance and aroma of Christ and we will find that our perspective changes and we are able to see things differently and to not be held back. Genuine connection with Jesus frees us into uh, living in trust, in faith, in love, in hope and in grace, in these things that, that just might not be in our default nature at all. Things that are absolutely the nature of Christ. Things that when you see them will identify that He has been at work within you. And in Psalm 2, the shift in perspective gets applied to our problems, right? How we experience what we experience. And I've watched a, se a second grader have a, uh, a level seven nuclear meltdown because the red and white polka dot bow tie on Mr. Wiggles, her stuffed animal, came off. What could be more catastrophic? And at the other end of the scale, for more than a year, the world has watched the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, display Churchill-like composure and tenacity as his country has being and is being ravaged by the Russian invasion. And this reveals an important truth. Here's the key for us today. You want to write something down? Here comes our life lesson. And I'll tell you, this is also insight into spiritual warfare. If you want to battle, this is part of your technique. It is master's level guide into the life empowered by the Spirit of God. It is a dance move that we apply in the dance of our life. We don't walk alone. We don't face our issues alone. We don't have to anyway. At any moment, we have direct access to our God, and we may call on Him for aid, insight, comfort, mercy. Here is the insight experienced and recorded some 3,000 years ago in Psalm 2. Our reaction to any problem is not defined by the problem itself, but by our perspective of the problem. Got problems? And of course you do, right? We all do. And we all have more 
problems and we have new problems and we've still got the old problems and we've got recurring problems and we've got unexpected problems. We've got super lousy, lingering, painful problems and we will see problems again and again. Wisdom and spiritual maturity therefore come when we cultivate the ability to view our problems from multiple perspectives. And Psalm 2 does this by showing us problems from God's perspective. This is what makes God laugh. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, 3. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Four, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Five, he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, six, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Seven, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Eight. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Nine. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Ten. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned. You rulers of the earth, 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. 12, kiss His Son or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You know what makes God laugh? You heard this before people say this to you. You know what makes God laugh? Tell them your plans. The mighty nations surrounding tiny Israel, little tiny Israel, they're plotting against her. The drums of war are thundering. Death and destruction were about to rain down on God's people. They had allied together to overcome. God, the, those people were going to be destroyed by their enemies, and no doubt this struck terror in the hearts of the people who were watching. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And our God knows the schemes of kings and armies. They won't prevail. Nothing will interfere with his plans for his people or stand against his chosen king. That's not the same as your plans, but God's plans. The, the psalm is inviting God's people to reconsider their circumstances from heaven's point of view. So stop for a moment and remember. Stop for a moment. Lift your eyes up to a higher altitude. Stop for a moment and remember. Remember God's covenant promises. His love, His power, 
and His justice, even as the nations rage. Remember. And with this shift in perspective, the psalmist testifies that their mourning can turn to joy, their tears into laughter. And as you go on to read Psalm 2 sometime again this week, reflect on your own problems and imagine them from God's perspective. His laughter isn't because he thinks that our problems are silly or insignificant. It's not because he does not empathize with our struggles. He's not laughing at you. He's not laughing and saying, this is all your own fault. The Lord laughs because he knows that ultimately nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And he invites us, his people, to reconsider our problems from his almighty perspective. We already have our own perspective, right? We've already been, that, that one's already engaged. And if your perspective is like my perspective, it's not usually helping us out. Our own perspective tends to lead us towards despair. But we are covered by Him. And when we are about God's business, then we are covered by God's insurance. What He wants to bring about will come about. So the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome, getting ready to go meet them. And in it, he lays out what, ha- what he's already lived. Uh, this has been his life, what he's found to be true. He talks a lot about what he says, present sufferings. And, and then he gets to the end of the section, and he says this. It's Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Many of you will, will, will know this. What then shall we say in response to these things? And that these things just happen to be the present sufferings, Okay. If God is for us, who can be against us? 32. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's praying for us. He is fighting for us. He is fighting on our behalf because God is for us. He's not cheering against us. He's cheering us towards the finish line that He has chosen. He loves us and is not sitting idly by, but He is actively showing His love for us. His love was shown on the cross, but not just at the cross. He died for us, gave His life for us, but bigger than that. And we hang our whole faith on this. We hang all of our hopes on this. Christ Jesus who died for us And then Paul kind of just explodes. No one condemns us because Jesus died for us. But more than that, not just not being condemned as if that was not a big enough deal, but he didn't just die for us, but he was raised to life. He rose from the dead. He came back. He went where everyone else goes to death. But he did what no one else did. He didn't stay dead. And this is the key to our whole faith system. This anchors us in in, in the not just the visible world. This perfect man was raised from the dead. This God man did not stay dead. And right now, 
He is advocating for us at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. With Jesus, the one who died and rose again on our side and advocating for us just what kind of opposition will overcome us. Who will be able to take us, uh, to attack us and pull us away from our Savior? Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Or famine? Nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? 36, as it it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And the Apostle Paul, he knew all about hardships and suffering. He wrote about it repeatedly, and especially in 2 Corinthians. You should really read 2 Corinthians. You want some homework? Read 2 Corinthians this week. Hear about Paul's view uh, of his experience regarding suffering. What does is, what is, uh, suffering look like to him? Here's just part of the story, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 24. Five times, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's code, that's lingo, right? That means flogging right? 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 lashes. Five times. Five times 39 brings the lashes total up to 195 lashes. That's a lot of lashes. The reason that they say 40 lashes minus one, the reason it's code was because 40 lashes was supposed to kill you. And flogging wasn't supposed to kill you, just to mark you just to help you to remember, to maim you, to permanently identify you as a criminal and a troublemaker. 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Because five times, three times with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers, even the ones who are close to me. 27, I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. 28, Besides everything else, which is an awful lot of everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Life-threatening pressures for the churches. 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had, had the city of the Damascus scenes guarded in order to arrest me. 33. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I know what it's like to suffer. Paul knows. And yet it is Paul who is also telling us, testifying to us of what his spiritual and real world experience is like. He told us that we are the ones who should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then he displays some of what that has looked like for him. In spite of all of these hard, ongoing, discouraging, frightening challenges, Hear what Paul 
is encouraging his fellow believers with. Yes, all of these things have happened to me. It seems like they never end. Yes, they are hard. Yes, it hurts. So, because I face hard things, does that mean that God is against me, that I'm a failure? Are these lousy, hard things evidence that God has rejected me? Abandoned me? Back to Romans 8, verse 37. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lived with experience, stamped in His blood, I know what it's like. His perspective has been changed. He has been transformed. He finds and experiences joy in the midst of what everyone else, including us, would describe as horror. And, this is important, he's not insane. He is entirely sane. He is connected to a higher understanding, not bound by simply our human view of what is happening to him and around him. He now sees differently and experiences differently. Peace in the midst of chaos. Joy in the midst of hardship. It's no longer just about Him. He is working. He is connected. He is in partnership with the Creator of the universe and the King above all kings. He is involved in a mission that is so big and so significant that it's galactic. He is part of the growth and development of the kingdom of God. He is establishing an embassy of the kingdom of God in the midst of hostile country. And it is the same mission that you are invited to give your life to. No longer just living for yourself and what is immediately in front of you. Living for the approval of God alone and bringing freedom and bringing truth, bringing love, delivering grace, forgiveness, and hope wherever you go. That's the mission of Jesus. That's the mission of the church. And you were part of that church. And I don't just mean into one, but the church of Jesus Christ on this planet called earth that goes from the beginning of our counter zero I can't make people who seem to to not care about these things suddenly care about these things. But I can care for the people that Jesus loves, even if they don't agree with me. And before we finish, I can leave you with one reminder. The only thing I can tell you is that at least one of you is an apostle of God. Live like it might be you while you also live like it just might be one of those around you. Kind Father, thank you for the way that you have been at work. You are at work. You will be at work. It is difficult for us to imagine the future. We have a very difficult time imagining your intervention in our future. We imagine that things, if they're hard now, will get harder later. We don't see your intervention. We don't imagine it. And yet you have promised to be faithful 
to us. You have promised to see us through. You have promised to empower us to overcome, to bear up under, and to come through. This partnership with you transforms the way that we can experience life. We all have problems, and we find that they just keep coming. Sometimes they even start to hurt more than they used to hurt. And we wish it wasn't so, and we wish that they wouldn't do what they did, and we wish it didn't have to be, and we wish, and, we, and yet we come back to you, and we ask again, we beg for your mercy, for these things that I have in my hands that are hard, right now. I pray that you would transform my heart and my mind into the likeness of Jesus. You would give me insight. You would give me new perspective and you would give me power to face what it is that I need to face. And your your, your response isn't, give it your best shot. Your response is your promise to be with and to empower us to be about your mission. So help me to find clearly in my mind what your mission is for me. Because when I'm about that, I'm under God's insurance plan. We acknowledge that we've got hard things and we don't know how to deal with all the hard things that we've got to deal with. Nobody seems to understand exactly what it's like for us because where we are right now, no one else has ever been. So we look to you again. We place our trust in you and on you. We place our full weight of trust on you. Depending on the one who lived on this earth, endured all that we have endured, yet did not sin. Who gave his life willingly that we might have the chance of salvation and forgiveness to experience the mercy and the grace of God. Give us insight into what that is once again so that we might also in kindness, in generosity, in grace, share this hope with others. Not because we preached them a sermon, but because we lived well in front of them and we salted our words well with wisdom and kindness. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Take us forward again this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.